Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning, and good morning to all of you here at Hillcrest. My name is Tyler Schoenrock, and I am one of the pastors around here, and specifically, I get to hang out and be with our students. And I absolutely love what I get to do around here with students, with families, with parents, and with leaders. I have some really, really great and amazing leaders as well that I get to interact with on a weekly, so we love that. And, and I am feeling really good, and I am feeling super excited this morning because I am able to share with you all today. And I kind of feel like a little kid in a candy store after mom and dad has dropped you off and you, they gave you 50 bucks in your pocket because Fred and David aren't here this week, and I'm kind of like this kid that's just in awe and wonder of, of what we get to talk about today. And... I do have a question for you, though, before we start, and it is, did you guys pack a lunch? Because I, I may be going for a couple hours up here today, but that's just how big this topic is, and no, Melissa, I saw your face. I'm not going to be here for a couple hours. So last week, we started our summer series, and it's called Together We Believe, and this series is where we, as a church family, are going to be talking about the core to what makes Hillcrest, Hillcrest, as a church and a body of believers, and and really have our minds engaged, as the tagline says, minds engaged and our hearts awakened to these very fundamental truths that are in our Christian life. And, And I think we so easily in this walk with Jesus just kind of brush those things aside sometimes because we, when we start talking about this core stuff, and I do this sometimes because I'm like, well, I already know that stuff. I already know this. So I'm good. That's my foundation. I already know all that. And then we just kind of check out. And, but my hope today is that we would actually hold ourselves back from doing that. We would look at these truths with fresh eyes. And where we engage our minds and we wrestle with them and we kind of let it soak into the desires and the motivations and the cravings that are in our hearts. And so may we be unified today as a church family in solidifying ourselves on these foundations of our faith. And so last week, Fred did a, did a brilliant job of talking about our father God, and no, I didn't have any funny videos, so I'm sorry about that. But I, did, I do hope that you had the ability this past week to wrestle with some of those ideas and even tuned into our podcast, This is Hillcrest, where Ryan Horsberger was on, and he sat down with David and Fred and unpacked some of that more, and I hope that you guys were able to check that out. You can go ahead and look at that on the website if you missed it. But this morning, the reason that I am so excited, like a kid in a candy store with 50 bucks just ready to get myself just devour this stuff, is because the topic today is the book we read, the Bible. And I want every single one of you to say, duh, because every week we come here and we preach and talk about the Word of God. But today we're going to be looking into His Word about His Word. And the question that I want us to really start our time with today really penetrates deeply into the importance of the Bible and Scripture in our life, and it's this. How do we know who God is 
and what he is like. So before we dive into that question, I would love for us to pray together. Um, so let's, let's pray. God, you are so, so good to us. We love you because of your sovereign power. You're, you're always in control. You're right alongside of us. So today, as we look deeper into how we get to know you, as we dive into your word, as what it says about your word, may we engage our minds and wrestle with these things, but also, Lord, may we be awakened in our hearts to be more and more in tune with what you are saying through this book. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So how do we know who God is and what he is like? And to answer this question, I think we should look at maybe a more tangible example from my own life. And, and that is my relationship with my lovely, amazing wife who is just sneaking into service now. And this is a picture of Amanda and I. This is actually our first picture together that we ever took while we were dating, our first month. And what we have here is Amanda came and helped me decorate my door at the church that I was working at for Christmas. There was a Christmas little competition. So, of course, I had to go with Snoopy and the uh, doghouse for my door. And no, I didn't win the competition, which I'm so disappointed by. But it was a wonderful way for us to continue and start our relationship knowing each other. And so I had this desire to continue to get to know her in that early part of our dating relationship. And I had this want to be in more deeper of relationship and get to know her more and more. But I'm a, I am a guy, so how do I do that? <laughs> right? Like, how in the world do I even make that happen? Because I'm fumble and I fumble with my words and she made me really nervous. And how do I know who she is and what she is like? We spend time together. We communicate with each other. We actually engage our minds in conversation, in asking of deeper questions of each other's life, and listening to each other's experiences and perspectives. And to this day, even in our marriage, that continues to be true. And similarly, in our relationship with God, we don't just start off our relationship with him, diving deep and into who he is and what he is like, and then just kind of never learning more. Instead, we actually dive deeper and see that we continue to learn more and more in this process with him. And where is it that we learn more about who he is? It's this book. The Bible. It is 66 books in length. It's 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New, and it's 66 books of God revealing himself to us throughout mankind's history. It's through stories and poems and covenants and instructions and promises. This book is the tool God has chosen to reveal his nature and his character and his identity to us as his people. So we're going to be talking about this book. 
And our big idea today, again, it's a lengthy one, like last week, but we're going to be breaking it down into five ideas and walking through that. And it says this. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. That it was written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit so that their writings in the original were supernaturally and verbally inspired and free from error in part and in whole as no other writings have ever or ever will be. They are complete and final revelation of the will of God to man and so are the supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. So we're going to break this down a little bit idea by idea and the first is just that first phrase. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. So together we believe that the Bible are is and forever will be the words of God put to page. And Paul, in his writings to Timothy, affirms this, but also adds more weight on that reality than just that it's the word of God. He says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God. And this is God's word, yes. And not only are these his words, but Paul also says that it's breathed out. By the Lord. There is life in it. Just as there was life that God breathed into Adam in creation. There is life in this book and that God is using this to breathe life into you and me. Let's just let that truth like sit on us for a moment. This book is breathed into and given life by the Lord as the tool that God uses to breathe life into us. What a beautiful, beautiful image of the life-giving God that we have. And and we're going to be coming back to this 2 Timothy verse in a little bit, but We're going to continue to move forward. And in this next part, it's just answering this question then that naturally comes, well, well, how did we get these words to paper? How How did we get that here now? And how in the world did all of that work? And it's the next part of our big idea. And we believe that it was written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit so that their writings in the original were supernaturally and verbally inspired. So not only is this the word of God, but we actually believe that this book was written by men and those men were inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit in their writings. Peter echoes this actually in, in, first, in 2 Peter 1, in verses 19 to 21, and he says this. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Lord spoke to these biblical authors. And through these men, we get the word of the Lord that's given to us. It's absolutely like fascinating to me how that occurs and how God just designed it that way. But to help us understand this a little more, here's a little graphic that we have seen David use before in our series through 1 Peter. And it starts off with God, the Lord. And through the Holy Spirit, he moved these writers like Peter and John and Paul and Moses and others to put those teachings and these instructions and stories and promises to stone or to scroll. And that is what is called inspiration. So we say the word is inspired. That's what, that's what we mean. And so my brain runs down rabbit trails, so you guys are going to have to be continue to just guide with me. But you're okay with that, right? Because you guys listen to David a lot. So like... You're just here with me. So, but I'm just like David in that way. So listen. So just ride with me for a second. But the next question that my brain comes to for me is, does that mean that the version or the translations that we read are those inspired words? So what translation then is the one that rules them all? Is it the ESV? What about the KJV? Well, how about the NIV? What about the NIV 1984 versus the NIV 2011? Which one of those is the inspired words? The answer is none. As much as I love the extra spiritual version, the ESV, it is not the inspired word of God. These versions were that we read are not inspired. The originals are the original writings. What we read are the translations of the copies of copies of copies of those original inspired words that God brought to Peter. So throughout, and we're going to dive more deeply and get more nerdy into that in just a second. So I'm going to just ride with me there too. So through the Holy Spirit, God inspired and moved the biblical authors to write down his actual words. But what happens when we then read these words? When we read the words? Why should I then read it if they're not the inspired words? Because when we read God's word, when we study and read and soak in the rich truth of the Bible... The Holy Spirit is working in our hearts to actually reveal God to us through his word. And this is what is called illumination, where the Holy Spirit is, actually reveals more and more to us about who God is through this book and through his word. And this is where I think Things with scripture on our side of this spectrum can get a little sideways because we're sinful human beings. 
Because we read scripture and we try so desperately to interpret it from our own point of view. And my own finite point of view, I kind of look at this thing as like, oh, what, what, what do I think about this? And in doing so, we kind of miss the entire point of a passage or the message that the biblical authors were sometimes intending for us to read. So it is so important for us when we are reading scripture that we always try to define something. And that's called author's intent. So to understand more fully the intended message of a chunk of scripture, we need to actually study what the message was intending to say in context to like who is writing. Like Peter or Paul, or John, or any of the other biblical authors. We kind of have to know those things. Also, we have to say, like, who are they writing to? Who's the audience that they're writing to in that time when, they were, when the words were inspired to them? And then also, when and where do these things take place, these writings take place in history? So this is so important as we are handling and wrestling through Scripture, when we read and crack open this Bible and we, we look at it, we have to keep these things in mind. And this is also a concept that we see in the world of communication as well. And I was a communication studies major uh, in college. And this was a, actually a huge concept that bled over when I was getting into biblical studies as well. And it's a, about sending and receiving of messages. And so here's an example that I think kind of shows this danger in communication, but I think it can also translate to when we're reading scripture as well. So my wife and I are having a conversation. So there's my wife, and there is me. And, well, my wife says to me this message of, we need to fix the bed. So this is a true story. It's a true thing that happened. Our bed frame broke one night as we both were like getting into bed to sleep. And of course, whose side of the bed was it that broke? It was me. Okay, it was my bed, side of the bed that broke because I am an absolute Sasquatch of a human being when I flop in and out of bed in the morning. Okay, so that's who I am. And so did I just break one of the support slats? No, I broke two. Not just two, I broke three. Okay? So we're laying in bed. But Amanda communicated the need to me in that moment, we need to fix the bed. It was a simple request. It's a simple ask in that moment, right? Well, the message that I heard was this. We need to fix the bed sometime. You guys laugh, but I think you know why. Do you guys see the difference in those messages? We should fix the bed. We need to fix the bed sometime. Can you see where maybe we were not quite on the same page in that moment? Well, what was she actually communicating? She said, yeah, I heard it right over here. <laughs> we should fix the bed as soon as possible. So now we have two different messages going on here. They're both similar to each other, but they are actually really different in urgency, which is a super important part of the message. 
So then the question that communication scholars run with, as well as what I ran with, was whose message is correct? I hope all the husbands are pointing to their wives in this room. (laughs) Is it Amanda's or is it mine? Some would say, well, you both are right. You're both right. It's your truth. Others would say, well, Tyler's right because it's what his interpretation was. It was what he thought the message was. And if it's not received, then that's the message that it is. And that's his truth. But I think we all know what the true thing is here. And all communication professors and scholars and even biblical scholars would tell you this, that Amanda is right. Why? Why? Because she is the creator or the author of the message. And her intended message is the one that is correct. Biblical scholars will say this as well about when we are reading Scripture. That the most accurate way of reading Scripture is to always be grounded in this concept of author's intent. So that we don't actually lose sight of the message of what the Lord spoke to these biblical authors. That we don't lose that and we don't put our own sinful spin on it. Because, trust me, we're good at that. Are you guys still with me this morning? I see, some, I see a little bit of glazed looks. I see some nods. We're doing okay. All right. I know that that was a little nerdy. I got into my communication background, and I was like, oh, yay, I'm so excited. But are you guys even ready to get a little more nerdy? Oh, yes, Jill's nodding her head. Yes, let's go. So our next big idea gets a little more nerdy, and it's that the word of God is free from error in part and in whole as no other writings have or ever will be. So Proverbs says this, and it's Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And again, you guys are just running with my brain today. So we're running a marathon, and you guys are running right alongside me, but I don't run physically. I run in my brain. So come on and join And how can I trust, this is the next question, how can I trust that this is a close and reliable representation, what we read? How can I rely on this as a close and reliable source of the original inspired writings? And how are they without error? How... That's the natural next question. Well, to answer that question, we have to go into the historical and the archaeological community. You guys ready to jump into that? They actually, in academia, look at historical manuscripts or copies. Okay, So they look at copies of documents throughout history to actually determine the accuracy and the reliability of the words that are here in this literature. And in that community of academia, they have two different things that they use to measure the reliability and accuracy. You guys, you guys with me still? Okay, I haven't lost anybody yet. (laughs) Okay, we'll get back. We're coming. So the first one that they use is this. For reliability of a source, the overall number of manuscripts and copies that have been found. 
So the more copies, the more manuscripts that they find throughout history, that actually creates more evidence for them to prove that things are authentic. Because they can compare those copies to each other and see the differences and the similarities to confirm what's the, what has been changed, what's, what is the same. And then the second is the number of years between the original writing, so when Peter or John or whoever wrote those things, and the first copy ever made. So the amount of years that is that actually shows reliability because if there's less amount of years between the copy and the original, the less chance for error to happen in it. So just keep that in mind. The less amount of years, the more reliable a source is between those copies. All right. So now let's look at how the Bible stacks up against some of these other historical pieces of literature that we like see throughout history. So the first one is Caesar. These are accounts, handwritten accounts from Caesar of the Civil War, the Gaelic Wars that took place, and the rise of the Roman Empire. You can see there that they have only found 10 copies of that throughout history. And the gap between the original and the first copy is a thousand years. That's a huge gap of years, right? And, and it's actually so little of historical copies, yet the historical community will actually look at what Caesar said and say a lot of those things are highly reliable about the writings and the history of Rome. They take a lot of that from there. Similarly, in our next one, and it's a spoiler alert too of what we are saying, but Homer's Iliad is 635 different copies that they have found. And this is where we get like the Trojan War and the different things about that, about the Trojan horse, right? And there's only 500 years from the original to the first copy. So, okay, a little more reliable. Finally, the Bible, the New Testament. This is the historical account of Jesus. There are over 24,000 historical copies that have been found of the New Testament. And from the originals that were written to the first copy ever made is only about 25 to 29 years is their, is their uh, approximation. So 25 years. So according to the historical analysis of these literature pieces, we can see that in an academic sense, the Bible is reliable and accurate and is in its part and in whole without error. And, and that was just talking about the New Testament. If we shift to the Old Testament for just a second, this is how reliable the academic community views those first books of the Bible. I had a professor in college at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, a state school that would have the Bible as his primary textbook for teaching ancient Israel. Isn't that absolutely wild? 
Like, and it truly speaks to the volumes and the richness of this book. So I told you guys I was going to nerd out a little bit. So I nerd out. I dived in. Were you guys with me? You're still following, still tracking? Okay, good. I see a lot of nods. So we're going to keep moving through our big idea onto our next idea. And it's that the Bible, the writings, they are the complete and final revelation of the will of God to man. This means the Bible is complete. And and like without any additions, the 66 books, we have the salvation story through Jesus Christ. It cannot have anything added or taken away to it, from it, taken away from it. And Paul writes about this. And, and honestly, in this writing, he puts the absolute smackdown on these jabronis in Galatia. And these guys, these jabronis, wanted to add to the salvation story of the gospel. And in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, he puts the smack down and he says this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let me just emphasize that again. Paul said, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. So as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul, Paul is clear. I jumped ahead there. Paul is clear here. The book that we have is complete. If anybody tries to add to it or they preach something that's contrary to it, let them be accursed. That is powerful stuff coming from Paul, coming from him. We add nothing and we take away nothing from the scriptures. And then our final idea for today is, And after all we have talked about today, the Bible is the word of God. That we have written, that it was written by men who were inspired by God. That if if it was free of error in part and in whole and is reliable in its entirety. That it's complete and cannot be taken away from or added to. After all of that, we see that inevitably this book of God's word has the supreme authority over our lives as Christ followers. And going back to those 2 Timothy verses, just a bookend today, this is what Paul says again. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I'm going to focus on what he says in verse 17. Because he says that through the scriptures, that those who are people of God will be complete and equipped for every good work. 
that through the scriptures, we will not only be a little bit better in our conduct or our faith, but Paul says we will be made complete or made whole. And it is through his word that we can actually experience this fullness of God firsthand and experience life through him and his word. But Paul could have just stopped there, but he didn't. He added another phrase. He says, we will be equipped that the word of God equips us for everything we will do in this life as a believer. It tells us what to do. It tells us what not to do and to avoid. It gives us promises of who our identity is in Jesus. And it spurs us on to live and love drastically different than the world around us. So we don't fight against what God says in his word. We surrender ourselves under its lordship, its control, because we trust, we obey, and we believe that God's way is so much better for us than what our human nature can like even fathom. So as we come to a, the finish line today of the marathon of Tyler's mind, I have some takeaways for you guys. The first is a challenge this week to just carve out some time for you and Jesus and in that time, wrestle with these three questions. The first, do you believe all it teaches? Do you obey all scripture requires and commands of us? And then finally, do you trust all of Scripture's promises that he says about us and about him. Not only are we supposed to engage our minds in this stuff, though, and gain more and more knowledge about Scripture and what Scripture says, but how is your heart? Towards God's word? Are you desiring to get to know the God of the universe through this book? And what is preventing you from doing so? And then finally, this is my final one. Who do you have in your life that you can dig into scripture with. Our lives as Christ followers are not meant to be alone. We are not supposed to be on an island. 
trying to figure this out on our own. We're supposed to be in community with other believers and wrestling together with what God is speaking to us through his word. That's why we love life group around here and and Bible studies and think it's so crucial to not only be poured into by people in our lives, but actually to be poured out and to build others up through God's word. So as we close today, we close our time today, I think that it is only appropriate that we join together in this beautiful act of unity in communion. This family of believers is coming alongside each other, declaring that we submit under the supreme authority of God's word. And that together we believe in the fundamental core truths that are displayed to us through this book. So we're going to pray together, and then Jack and the worship team are going to come up and lead us through communion. So let's pray. God, you are such an awesome and wonderful and powerful God. Lord, we are just in awe of who you are and how you have fashioned and created us. But Lord, thank you for your word. That you actually give us easy access every day to crack open this book and see and hear and listen to who you are and your words for our lives. God, as we go into communion today, may we wrestle with in our minds and and engage our minds and awaken our hearts to this new reality of this old reality that you have given to us through your word. And may we go this week and be the kind of people that crave this book more and more. In your name we pray, amen.